Good evening to you all. Does the sound all right? If you can't hear, raise your hand. (laughs) So tonight I'm going to give the talk that uh, is usually given about this point in the retreat. And it's usually given by the junior member of the teaching team. (laughs) Because they think that uh, the junior members probably know more about hindrances than they do. (laughs) So in thinking about this talk, I I had a memory actually come up of the the first uh, 10-day retreat I ever did. And... uh, This retreat took place a long time ago. And it was uh, right around the time I was doing a lot of very uh, intensive work around uh, violence issues in the community. I had been been doing that for a number of years. And I was really pretty burned out, you know. And I saw this flyer for this meditation retreat that was going to take place at Brighton Bush uh, in Oregon, Brighton Bush uh, community. And it had a number of things that I wanted. I'd always been sort of curious about meditation, what it was, you know, what it was like, and I wanted to learn it. But there are some other things that were really interesting about it, too. I mean, they talked about how this was like uh, in old-growth forest, Uh, And there were a lot of hiking trails and vegetarian food and uh, hot tubs. (laughs) And it was cheap. (laughs) So it met all my criteria, right? I thought, this will be great. You know, it'll be like a vacation. I can, like, get out of the city. I can, you know, be outside. It'll be, you know, wonderful. And I can learn how to meditate. And it wasn't until I got there and actually you know, got filled in on some of the details that I understood that, you know, the flyer that I read and I saw, I saw the, you know, uh, hour of sitting and the meditation and the hour of walking meditation. And I thought that meant it was like two hours a day. (laughs) And when I got there and I realized it was like an hour of walking meditation, an hour of sitting meditation, an hour of walking meditation, an hour of sitting meditation, an hour of walking meditation, an hour of sitting meditation, from five in the morning until ten at night. I thought I had died and gone to hell. (laughs) And if I hadn't told my friends that I was going to do this, and they hadn't like sent me merrily on my way with, you know, Oh, it'll be great. It'll be great for you. You know, this is just what you need. I would have gotten in the car and turned around and gone back. Because my mind, when I got there, was so in need of peace and tranquility and so much needing a vacation that when I actually was confronted with the actual conditions that were there, I realized that the only way that I was going to be able to do it was I would have to just really try to do it. I would have to try to do it completely or else I would be unable to do it at all. 
And so my experience at that first retreat, that first 10-day retreat, was just these explosions of aversion in the body and the mind. The body was... This is back in the old days when, you know, if you said to the teacher, you know, I'm, uh, I've got all this pain, I, I can hardly, you know, they'd say, oh, just sit, just note pain, 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 you know, pain, pain, just sit, pain, 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 pain. <laughs> and I can remember being sitting Seiza on a, a Zafu, and uh, at the end of each sitting period, I couldn't get up. I would have to kind of like fall over on my side. <laughs> and lay there for about five minutes and then like gradually unfurl my legs and till I could get up. So I get I guess the previous work that I had been doing had kind of conditioned me to accept uh, extreme uh, conditions as something normal that I should just, you know, kind of like work with. And so I did the best that I could. And lo and behold, I found, rather to my uh, amazement, that at the end of this retreat, at the end of this 10 days, something had indeed changed. Something had shifted internally, that there had been points where I had dropped into an understanding of, oh, you don't have to be... uh, dominated or completely enmeshed in these mind states when they arise, there is a way that you can experience this without being totally submerged and destroyed by it. Quite revelatory for me. So while I wouldn't advise, you know, careless reading of flyers to anyone, (laughs) you know, sometimes these experiences... uh, can turn into great blessings, experiences where our expectations are thwarted. And indeed, you know, when we come to retreat here, we often come with expectations or at least hopes, you know. Um, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be able to, you know, find the breath. I'm going to be able to drop into some states of peace and bliss Uh, You know, it'll be like this good sitting that I had this other time when I was on retreat, and I should be able to pick up where I left off, uh, you know, the last time I did the three-month retreat. uh, And it doesn't work that way often. You know, we sit down and we say, okay, this is a journey. I understand it's a journey. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to orient my mind and focus my attention in a certain kind of way, in a certain kind of direction. And we try to do that. And in the immediate uh, sense, it seems like a very simple kind of undertaking, right? We're just trying to be aware. And as uh, Miyoshin was saying the other night in her talk, awareness is already there. It's not like we have to create it. There's already awareness. And all we have to do is like, be with the, the awareness that's already there and, you know, notice what it's aware of. <laughs> it seems like something that should be quite possible. But then what happens when we sit down there? We sit down, we try to be uh, focused on the breath, say, 
we're mindfully feeling the sensations in the body, you know, and we're hoping our mind's going to be, you know, bright and alert and tranquil, equanimous, balanced. And we really wish it was like that, but alas, very often that's not the case. So, you know, we realize that, well, the mind's not really on board uh, completely with the simplicity of the task, right? There's some other things going on. In fact, this mind kind of has its own mind. It doesn't seem to be so easily directable. And then the body has its thing too, right? It has its own preferences, uh, which it states quite insistently, You know, it wants comfort, it might want uh, movement, it might want a nice piece of chocolate. Or maybe it would like a nap. Like right there, right there on the cushion, might want a nap, a little nap. So even though we come to retreat with this hope of finding peace and harmony or internal quiet or bliss of some type, Our hopes and desires are often thwarted and we're actually confronted with the cross currents in our mind that can overwhelm our efforts to exert immediate control. And we struggle. We start to struggle, right? We start to struggle, at least in part, against a feeling of failure. So then feeling like... uh, we need to get a grip on things, right? Because it's, it's, you know, we can tighten and then we try harder, right? We try to hold on to the chosen object. And then as we slip away into distraction again and again, the desire arises for a good meditation. You know, we want a good meditation. And we believe a good meditation is one where there's We're able to stay with the chosen object, completely open, balanced, and uh, equanimous. You know, preferably with bliss. That's always nice. So now desire is in the mix. There's something that we want, and there's desire going. And we push for what we feel is going to be an adequate connection with to uh, say the breath. And we really want to get on with this at this point, you know, enough of this spinning. In fact, we might start to feel a little bit pissed off (laughs) that it isn't working. And so aversion arises in the mind and we start to feel angry. You know, maybe it's at ourselves Uh, Maybe it's at the teachers, maybe it's at uh, the circumstances here. Uh, Maybe it's the uh, inconsiderate person, uh, you know, sitting in your adjacent area who's uh, breathing too loud and who's, you know, destroying the potential of samadhi. (laughs) So judgment and disappointment arises and the desire to escape from the whole thing. So then boredom ensues as the minutes stretch on without end. How much longer will it be until they ring the bell? And then the question, should I look at my watch or shouldn't I? 
Oh my God. Five and a half more weeks of this. <laughs> my head's going to explode. And then the body gets restless and agitated. You know, the mind starts to kind of dart around and looks for things that might be more satisfying. You know, for, oh, where that bird? <laughs> that was pleasant. But there's nothing really to grab onto as objects kind of bounce by because they don't have any handle. So they just kind of bounce by and the mind isn't settling on things. So about this point is the doubt arising moment. And doubt is about how to proceed, about why it isn't working, about whether the seemingly endless task of dragging the mind back into some sort of uh, awareness can be done at all, and whether it can be done by you, and whether it is worth trying to do, whether we're capable of it and whether we're going to get out of it what we want. And then, you know, this kind of progression of things can kind of cycle through (laughs) repetitively uh, with variations on a theme. So at this point, you've enjoyed a tour of the hindrances. Welcome to them. Here they are. And there are a lot of things to learn here with the arising of the hindrances. And in fact, you might even say that the door that you must go through in order to find the peace you seek is located in the wall of the hindrances. This is how you get through. This is how you will make your way, is through these states. And I want to really emphasize that this is a primary place of practice, these hindrances. Because meeting these arising states, these states of difficulty and discontent, is really indispensable if you want to learn how to work with your mind. Because these are states that occur frequently, not just when you're on retreat. They're a significant part of experience. And if they're met in an unskillful way, they are a kind of barrier or a ceiling on how far we're able to move in the direction of happiness and freedom. They're a limitation. And if they're met very unskillfully, they can actually become strengthened. We can further condition the mind towards their occurrence, especially if we act from them intentionally. Well, we can't will them away, generally speaking, which is very unfortunate you must agree. Because if it was possible to will them away, we would never experience them, right? Because it's not like we like them. But that's not 
a strategy that generally works. But if we don't somehow figure out how to address the hindrances, the mind isn't going to be able to settle enough to collect its awareness, to to bring in the the dispersed kind of uh, awareness that uh, often winds up being lost in discursiveness. We won't be able to collect the mind and, and bring it into some sort of strengthened center from which we can then observe reality and come to wisdom. So we need to figure out a way that we can keep these experiences from fracturing our capacity to bring awareness into a useful, pliant, strong enough state of concentration so that we can actually see what we need to see, see how we create suffering and see how we can undo it. So just in the same way that um, these hindrances are sometimes described as obscurations of mind, you know, kind of like covering over the radiant and pure nature of mind, we can see that we kind of need to clear off the screen a little bit. But, you know, just as you know, uh, in terms of trying to clean off the screen of your TV or your computer, you know, there's ways to do it and ways not to do it, right? There's stuff you can put on there that just smears it around and ruins the screen, And there are other ways that you can actually begin the process of kind of clearing it. And we begin the process of clearing it, or clearing it enough, by knowing how to work with these states. There's a way that these states can actually serve our development, that they can actually be composted that they can actually be used, that they can become resources for awakening. So it's not necessary to condemn these, nor is it skillful to condemn these. These are fuel. These are the very thing that we need to learn about because these are the states of suffering. We need to turn towards them when they're present. But the first thing that we need to know about the hindrances is that we need to learn how to be able to recognize them. And this is, this is really an important piece because very often they're there and we don't see them. They just kind of operate and we're uh, enmeshed with them and carried away by them. We don't know them. We don't know they're going on. <clears throat> So let's talk a little bit about what they actually are and describe them. Recognizing the hindrances. They're most problematic when they're not recognized. But what are they like? 
You know, you can read the definition in the, in the, in the various Dharma texts and books. You know, desire is this and desire is that. But what's the subjective experience of sense desire when it's strong? Sense desire is when the mind is thirsty. I want it. I wish I had it. Got to get it. I need it. I love, love, love it. You know, it's kind of sticky. Right? It's wanting what is pleasant and beautiful. Um, it turns the whole process towards what feels good. Uh, it's not even-handed, so it's not interested in uh, things that are unpleasant or neutral in terms of feeling tone. There's a pursuit of gratification in it, and it's biased towards noticing the pleasant then getting it, kind of gripping it, intensifying it, keeping it. And this can be directed towards uh, body sensations, emotions, thoughts, objects, other beings, ideas, anything. So it's kind of satisfaction-seeking mind. So in terms of Buddhist personality types, this, this would be the desire type of mind, right? Predominant tendency. And then uh, the second of the hindrances is aversion. And I know a lot about this because I'm a, I'm a clear aversive type. So um, this is more along the lines of uh, hate it, it sucks, get rid of it, it's not good enough, I'm not good enough, it's wrong, get away from it, fix it, edit it, afraid of it. So this, when this is present, the mind n- knows what it doesn't want and what it doesn't like. And it's not wanting what is unpleasant, what it finds unpleasant. This can be kind of a a repressing um, experience, uh, evaluating in a condemning or fault-finding kind of way. And this, of course, is not even-handed either. You know, it's biased towards kind of irritation, anger, uh, hatred, impatience, uh, fear, tension, boredom, uh, resentment. It's biased towards noticing uh, what's unpleasant and then either fleeing or attacking it. So, you know, like uh, just in the same way that sense desire uh, can be directed towards any number of things, so can this. So aversion, interestingly enough, is generally easier to see than sense desire, but it's often defended by justification, right? Because people who are aversive types uh, or have a lot of aversion in their mind streams um, have a kind of sharpness of noticing, you know, so they can tell you why. And sometimes that's right on point. So the way this, this one plays out in practice, of course, is the arising of this particular state of aversion states of aversion in respect to particular phenomenon that are being experienced, right? And sense desire and aversion are the two biggies of the hindrances. 
The other ones are uh, also challenging, um, but they're not quite as heavily weighted. So the third is sloth and torpor, or lethargy. And of course, this is a very common uh, experience. So this is like sleepiness, dullness, daydreamy, sinking mind, uh, low energy, laziness, uh, little effort, kind of drifting in a haze of inattention, uh, deluded states of passive vagueness, uh, disconnected, tuned out, it's difficult to know what's going on, spaced out and okay with it. Uh, when this is going on, there may be like a default to fantasy. Uh, huh? <laughs> you know, this is the kind of huh state. And then uh, the next one is restlessness and worry. So with this one, you know, the mind is bouncing around from thing to thing, from state to state, unable to rest on or be with uh, an object. So there, it's kind of unsettled and kind of, sometimes it, it, this is experienced almost like ricocheting, you know, from one thing or another. It's like there's so much energy there, it's like boom. It can't uh, conform itself to the object long enough to uh, stay with it. So, so there's more energy than relaxation in this state, and it's difficult to observe anything because it's kind of a blur, you know. Often there's a lot of thought. Uh, it can be accompanied by agitation or anxiety. And discontent is often present and a lot of thinking. And the last of these is doubt, which is... Uh, One way to describe it is repetitive, uh, disabling questions and thoughts which don't have an available answer and which undermine being able to know with simplicity the meditation object. So it's a kind of energized speculation about things that kind of keeps churning in the mind and it's often paired with restlessness and worry. Uh, And this one can uh, undermine commitment to practice if it's bought into. Because it kind of keeps uh, the mind from really feeling enough trust to proceed along a particular path of practice. Now you can get, experience these individually. And you can experience what sometimes seems to be a number of them simultaneously, or at least in close association and time. And, you know, the opening scenario that I kind of invented, but which wasn't that much of an invention where I described what it's like to sit down and you try to do this, then this happens and this happens and this happens, is a way of pointing out that, you know, these things... Uh, these hindrances uh, tend to travel in groups, you know, they kind of like tend to bring their friends along with them. <laughs> bad company, <laughs> associating with uh, bad company. So if, if we looked at what the Buddha has to say about the hindrances, you'll see that you know, he, he makes a point of saying that you need to 
find a way to deal with them. He says that um, without having overcome these five, it's impossible for one whose insight thus lacks strength and power to know his own good, the good of others, and the good of both, nor will he be capable of realizing the state of distinctive achievement. Which is another way of saying, um, if we're lost in these states, we don't have an adequate orientation to reality. We can't see what's going on well enough to make skillful choices, the choices that lead to our own well-being and that of others. So we definitely don't want to get lost in these states, although we will, because we do. If these states were not present in our mind, uh, we'd all be completely (laughs) enlightened. So we don't want to cultivate these states. That's certainly true. And the Buddha talks in terms of the four great endeavors involved in wise effort. He says, well, if you're thinking about what you need to do with practice, you've got to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, which is a lot of negative language, but that basically means keep them from coming up. We should abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. We should arouse wholesome states that haven't arisen yet. And we should maintain and perfect wholesome states that are present. And when he says unwholesome states, he's talking about these very hindrances. Because they're obscurations to clear seeing, which is necessary in order to move towards liberation of mind. Because if you think about the Buddhist schema, we're liberated through insight. We're liberated through insight into causation and through wisdom. When we start to understand how things are put together, we naturally fall into harmony when we see it for ourselves. But if we're obscured, it's really hard to have that kind of seeing. So then the, the question is, well, if we've, we get these states all the time, if they're very common to us and they come up in meditation too, and we can't just ditch them or will them away, then what's to be done? Usually you can't just drop them. Sometimes you can. It's been known to happen that, you know, for instance, desire comes up and you see it immediately and you don't grab onto it or it gets a little bit of a a bite going on and you just say no and redirect. Sometimes it can be like that. But often um, they've kind of gotten a grip before we notice that they're there. So we need to learn to practice in this place where we become aware of the fact that they're present and they're operative in the mind.
And this is a very important place of practice. In fact, I would say it, it's maybe the most important place of practice. That's kind of a big statement. This is the most important place of practice, is the practice with hindrances. So why would I say that? Because this is the crossover zone from suffering to liberation. It's right here. Right here in learning to understand these, to understand their arising, to understand how not to get caught by them, to understand how to let go of them. Because these are, as was said earlier, are the very obscuration that is the only thing that's keeping you from liberation. So this is a pay attention place. And it's a real pivot point because how we engage with these and our practice determines which way things go whether it goes in the direction of deepening these manifestations of suffering or whether it goes in the direction of lessening them. And it depends completely on how we relate to them, which direction it takes. And this is true both in the short term or the immediate sense and in the longer term. So this is all about wise attention to these states, completely about wise attention, as so much of this practice is. So the initial wise attention, the initial mindfulness is recognition. Matter of fact, recognition and acknowledgement of their presence. So I kind of described them to you as a way of kind of saying, you know, when you notice a big uh, yellow light in the sky and it seems to be stationary, that's the sun. So, you know, when you notice repetitive, disabling questions and thoughts that don't have an available answer in which undermine being able to know with simplicity the meditation object, that's doubt. But part of your process is going to be to learn to recognize these for yourself, right? To see them for yourself. And mindfulness, of course, as always, is really the key to doing this. And mindfulness automatically strengthens the wholesome factors of mind and weakens the unwholesome. So if we think of these states as unwholesome states of mind, meaning they're not conducive to our well-being and uh, happiness, if we're enmeshed with them and lost in them, you can see that directing mindfulness towards them has the effect of weakening them and loosening their grip. It's almost like mindfulness is exactly the... uh, the right fertilizer and uh, weed suppressant that you need for the cult- cultivation of your mind. Because it increases what you want to increase and it decreases what needs to be decreased. 
and it decreases the hindrances. And because it has such a key beneficial effect, the main point in working with the hindrances is always to uh, restore or establish mindfulness in relationship to them. It's in knowing the hindrances closely and through direct experience that we're able to know them without identification. Because it's with the identification that we really suffer and really get lost. But if we learn how to identify them and see how they function in the mind without getting hooked on them or inadvertently feeding them, Why then we're practicing in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Now there's a question this morning about, well, what's the fourth foundation of mindfulness? You remember that question? And the answer was in part that it includes phenomenon and understanding how phenomenon work. So in this particular case, the fourth foundation of mindfulness includes knowing the hindrances knowing how they arise, knowing what, what feeds them, knowing what weakens them, and knowing this on an experiential level, right? Knowing this on the, on the mind moment level through your own direct experience. And when they're known in this way, they're not an impediment to your practice. They are the practice. They are the practice of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So in this sense, then they're transformed from an obstacle to clear seeing into an actual step of awakening. So something that normally is uh, a state of suffering becomes a seeing of how suffering is created and how it's released. And this is the kind of composting or creative relationship with this experience that we really need. So to repeat, the main point in working with these is always to restore or establish mindfulness in relationship to them. So then we can learn from them and we can disarm them. And the rest of the advice about how to work with hindrances is all fine-tuning. And there's different suggestions for each one of them that uh, you can talk about with your teacher in your individual interviews. And I'll give you a little bit more generic advice about working with these states. Sometimes these states can be present in certain forms and they're not even particularly hindering, if you know what I mean. They're hindrances that aren't hindering. Um, And in these cases, you don't have to do anything special except recognize when they're present. You know, sometimes they're like, uh, you know, you ever heard the description of some some weather systems that move through really quickly like snowstorms. Let's say it's a clipper system, you know, it's just going to be this intense thing and then, then it's going to be gone. Sometimes they're like that. You know, they're just like there and they're strong and then they're gone. Good opportunity to learn the impermanence of states, right? that they, 
they are kind of self-liberating, that they do eventually go away. Because they're impermanent. And even if it does hang around, often there's nothing that you really need to do with it or about it. If mindfulness is present, it's often enough just to have it be uh, known. You know, connect, open, and allow is skillful when you can do that. A second point is the importance of normalizing the experience of their occurrence. I think uh, I had a very fortunate thing happen at my very first retreat, my brief residential, a very brief weekend retreat with uh, Stephen Levine that I got talked into. When the instruction, the meditation instructions were being given, the way they were being given was, ah, anger arises in the mind. Oh, anger, anger. Um, you know, um, restlessness arising, arises. Oh, of course, restlessness, restlessness. And there was something about uh, how the instructions were given that kind of implanted a seed in my mind that never led me to expect that I wouldn't experience these things. It was like so totally normalized. Well, of course, the, it was like, oh, the breath, the sensations of the breath, hearing, hearing, you know, sitting, sitting, sensations of the body, you know, annoyance, annoyance. I mean, it was all... Um, presented as, it, as if it was equally likely to be present, which was a very fortunate thing for me, <laughs> because it was. And so I never really got the sense of, like, there's a wrongness to these things being there. And if you can do that for yourself, if you can give yourself the understanding that the occurrence of these states are very normal, not unexpected, likely, quite possible, no big deal. Because the hindrances are the most disabling when they're unseen. And part of the reason they tend to be unseen is that we're not willing to recognize what them because we make a big deal out of it, right? So when they're present, if you can acknowledge it in as matter-of-fact a way as possible, that can really be skillful. So if you're willing to be honest about what you're actually experiencing, That's very good. And it's all right. It really is. Whatever you're experiencing, it's okay. It's the truth, right? It's so much easier when when we can just drop the need for it to be other than it is. And in fact, I would say the occurrence of the phrase in your mind, this shouldn't be happening, is like a 
screaming red light that you've fallen into opposition to what's actually true at present. So that's a good thought to have because when you have that thought, I'll plant that seed in your mind. When you have the thought, this shouldn't be happening, I shouldn't be experiencing this, that's good to know. Because then you know that you're in aversion. The second, another point is, notice if upon recognition of a hindrance, you have a reaction to what you've noticed. And it's quite likely that this may be the case, right? Is there blame, judgment, shame, anger, comparison, rejection, etc. present? And it's fine if there is, because it's just another thing, right? It's just another experience. It's just another phenomenon to be known and recognized. So then that then becomes the present object. That's the present hindrance, right? Is the reaction to the noticing of what happened previously. That happened, anger is present. Judgment is present. Uh, Self-judgment is present. Sadness is present. You know, you can just, just stay in the present. Just keep up with the weather report as it happens, right? Each twist and turn, just know it. Right? Keep up with it. And this whole... Uh, Area of practice, naming it and noting it can be really helpful. Because in order to, you know, dredge up a note or a name for it, you have to be conscious of it, right? So you're employing perception and clear comprehension as part of this mindful field to be able to maintain mindfulness in relationship to this experience. And this process of naming and noting it helps move into a relationship with this experience as just being a a phenomenon. It's an arising phenomenon like a sound or a body sensation. Another point is to notice if um, identification is present. And what do I mean by identification? Well, identification happens if the experience is being taken as being about self, a reflection on self, owned by self, etc., And why is this point key? Because we're taking something that is impersonal in the sense that it's arising because of causes and conditions. And instead of keeping our seat and seeing it as a mind object, we're kind of throwing the uh, 
lasso of our egoic sense around it and claiming it in a way that's very disempowering and very diluted, actually. But we all do this. But you'll know you've got identification going on when uh, a hindrance is present. When the self makes a story out of the arising of this. Right. And you'll see, you know, suffering is proportional. The more identified you are, the more you the more it seems to be about self, the more you suffer. So if you're suffering a lot, then look, because you'll probably see that there's a lot of identification and ownership going on about this, and that that this uh, phenomenon is being taken in some kind of way as evidence (laughs) of something about you um, that isn't serving. Because when the self makes a story out of the arising of phenomenon, it doesn't have the protection of mindfulness there anymore. And it's kind of entered into that hall of mirrors that is the ego. Another thing that can be really useful is to arouse investigation, which is the second factor of awakening. This is where you kind of, you're studying this from the inside. You know, you're breaking it down. You're kind of there's a blow by blow report that uh, you're generating by how you observe this. So the questions like, how do you know or recognize this hindrance? I mean, how do you know you're it's you're angry? You're experiencing anger. What does it feel like in the body? What are what are the sensations? What are the sensations of sense desire? What's the energy of restlessness? What does doubt feel like? Are the sensations getting stronger or weaker? Are there thoughts accompanying the hindrance? Emotions? Study it from the inside. Break it down into moment by moment, changing arisings, because it's not one thing. It's a bunch of things manifesting one after another. And once you start to understand this, these experiences become a lot easier to be with. You start to see, oh, it's not just like this one big thing. It's like, now I'm experiencing this. Now I'm experiencing this. Now there's tightness in the body. Now there's a feeling of energy. Now there's the impulse to get up off the cushion. Now there's a feeling of uh, sadness. Now there's, you know, a tear. Now it feels warm. Now I feel relaxation. You know, you're, you're keeping up with it as it manifests. You're bringing mindfulness. And with this working with hindrances, there's another piece, which is style flexing and wisdom is an important part of it. You know, sometimes a head-on, going into it, investigating it, staying with it, is just the right thing. Sometimes if these states are very difficult or repetitive, uh, and the battery, you know, your your practice battery is wearing down, you need to take a break. You know, you need to choose as a strategic matter to redirect 
to open up your practice, to do something different, perhaps to take a walk, perhaps to take a bath. Um, So we accept the feedback that occurs in the working with these states. And in particular, um, one thing to mention is, you know, the hindrances or difficult patterns of this type that that arise that are part of uh, trauma. You want to work with it in a way that preserves your uh, energy and sense of safety. So it's more skillful in those kinds of cases to kind of touch in strategically uh, with things briefly and then redirect the mind to a safe haven after periods of contact with difficulty. And in those kinds of cases, that is the way to be mindful. That is the way to empower yourself to be able to work with these these kinds of uh, emotional states and constellations. So, you know, that kind of tweaking is something that you can discuss with your teacher as well when difficulty comes up. So there's a whole array of tools. I'm laying them out for you kind of in a general kind of way. And you know, over time you'll learn to use them for yourself. And this is a, a very um, fiery kind of practice sometimes when you're working with the hindrances, right? Because you're right at the edge, right? You're like trying to find a, rela- a way to relate to states which are present, and which are often present in our minds. While we're in the practice of still developing the skill set in order to be able to do that, (laughs) right? So a lot of patience is an important part of that. You know, patience in learning how to do this. And respect for the the fact that meditation practice is really... um, a kind of art. You know, if you were going to say, uh, you know, how do you, how do you learn to walk on a tight tightrope? You would say, well, you know, you, you climb up on the platform. <laughs> you put, you know, one foot on the wire. And then you put the other foot on the wire, and then you just keep doing that. And that's, that's true. And then, you know, we see through uh, the use of our imagination, you know, you can imagine, <laughs> you know, the whoa, 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 you know, the falling off, the nearly falling off, the fishtailing, the, all the rest of it. It's inevitable. Right? So the arising of these states are inevitable. <laughs> so when I said, you know, the, the door to the peace you seek is basically uh, set in the wall of the hindrances, it's really true. 
So this is, this is our field of learning and this is our, our, our field of practice. So we, we may not ever really be able to uh, easily regard these as gifts, but they're certainly uh, spurs to uh, wake us up. And even uh, the Buddha, when he was, he was talking about um, uh, training monks and what it was like for monks when they're in you know, periods of their training, and he said, it's like you know, when you, when you uh, take an elephant out of the jungle you know, and you're, tr- you're trying to tame it and you kind of you know, restrict its mobility, you chain it to a post, it like goes crazy. <laughs> You know, it goes wild. It, it wants to return to its jungle ways. And I sometimes think of that uh, myself when I'm uh, practicing and experiencing hindrances. And I just think, oh, the mind wants to return to its jungle ways. You know, it wants to just, like, back to the, back to the ways the conditioned patterns are, are uh, established. So, you know, we're kind of going across our conditioning in many ways in doing this practice. And the hindrances, the arising of the hindrances, are uh, a reflection of the fact that we're kind of going across the grain. So it's just a question of learning, uh, you know, how to work with that skillfully. Because that is really key to our uh, unfolding of understanding, is seeing how the suffering arises in these states and how it can be let go. So with that, I uh, wish you all happy working uh, with your hindrances. Or as uh, a friend of mine told me when I was uh, going on retreat recently, may you make friends with your hindrances, but don't follow them. May our practice be for the benefit and well-being of all beings in all dimensions. And may it be a cause and condition for our own liberation and that of many others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.